Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Catherine Esty. Catherine has had her fair share of chapters and is now living as an 80-something, which is also the title of her book, 80-somethings, A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging, and Finding Unexpected Happiness. I realized I was old, but I now am on a mission to have people see that's normal and that we don't want to be fighting to be younger. We want to be saying this is 80 and that we should realize that there's pleasures in every age. I think people are so dreading aging and that there's so much that people need to learn about how aging is different from what they imagine it to be. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the second chapter. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kristen, for having me. I am absolutely delighted to be here. How are you doing? I am doing very well. The, it's at nine o'clock in the morning. It's snowy and sunshiny today. Not snowy, but there's snow in the ground. And uh, it's a lovely winter January morning, and I'm feeling excellent. Feeling like a new year in a little sparkle. Excellent. I always talk about changes women have had past 35 in their lives, in their careers. But at 88, I'm sure that you've had more than a second chapter. In fact, I know you have. So what chapter would you say that you are on now? When I started talking with you about second chapter, I thought, oh, wow, that is way not me. Because I have a, I counted up and it was, I was not sure if it was six or seven, but I settled on six. I think I have had six chapters, and it's one of the things I feel very strongly about, that that it makes good sense. I mean, you could say that she must be an unsteady person. She changes her mind so often if she's had six careers. Each one of them was uh, just was right for the time. But then it was in, in our long lives, if we're going to live 88 years, you do change and grow. And so I've been very pleased with the, the changes I've made. And have been very happy at most stages of my life. Right now, if you said, what's my career right now? I retired formally from my psychotherapy practice just one year ago in November. Uh, oh, wow. I hadn't realized that it was still going on until then. Yeah. So I was, and I loved that private practice. These, my clients, it was just, it had gotten smaller, but I still was doing it. So I went through retirement at age 88, 87, I guess. But I know I'm not sure I really am retired because I do see myself as a writer and I'm doing some teaching about aging, writing a blog every month. And then I do some podcasts like this. But so I don't think I'm really retired. And I have this and I'm teaching about aging well. And but I, but it is quite different at 88. I structure it so at any moment I, it's not, I'm not dug into it. I am more could get out if I my health changed. I have a little more tentativeness. I've done a lot of reading recently just about how we are more expected to live longer and longer, past 100, especially for many of the people who are just being born and growing up today. There's a really high likelihood that people will live past 100. I absolutely agree with you that we can't have the same path the whole time. and We can't expect to necessarily retire at 55 or 60 or 65. And I think you're a great example of somebody that obviously is still really vibrant and going and changing, not feeling settled for where you are in your life. That's right. I think that you could keep changing your whole life. And I think that's the way it is. And I think it's one of the big 
issues for our society now that people don't get it yet. I think that they're, you know, that at 60, that they may well live to be 100 and they'll have 40 years and that you really have to think about life differently than we've been doing. And I think we all have to learn how to make new chapters and to grow into new chapters. And how do you actually help yourself to move on? Because we do change. 88, you're not the same as 60. And that was, that's how I got interested in aging, because I suddenly realized the books mostly lump anybody over 65 or 60 as in a whole category. But again, I began seeing as I got older that it, you change your one way in the 70s, and then you have different issues in the 80s. And I got, my book is on 80-somethings, people in their 80s, and I wrote it because nothing was written about what it's like in that particular decade. As I was changing, I was, there was all kinds of transitions, and uh, there was nowhere to read uh, about what it was really, what was really happening. So that's why I started that book. So before we get too into the book, because that's a big part of your current chapter, just for everybody listening, kind of a bullet point, since you came up with six, what are the six that you're counting as your careers? Okay. The first was I taught school. I went back to the girls' high school that I had gone to and for three years taught. The graduation of the third year I taught was on a Monday, and I had my first baby on that Saturday. So I taught. <laughs> and, and that launched the second career, which was motherhood. And I think that was like the most difficult because of staying home. I stayed home for nine years, but I also picked up the writing. And I so I got a second career going. I wrote a book about gypsies. But then after the mothering, then I went to social work school. That was the hardest decision because it was way back in the 60s, unusual to people if they had. I had by then had four children. It was unusual to go to graduate school in the middle of four children that are 10, blah, 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 eight, six. Yes. So then, okay, so we go teaching, mothering, social work, school, and then worked in the community mental health center. Then I got, after 10 years there, I got interested in the kind of larger organizational issues. I was now a manager, and I, so I went, I thought, and I loved school, so I thought, I'm going to go back to school. So the fourth stage is really organizational consultant. I got my PhD and became a, a consultant to organizations. The fifth is the aging expert. And the sixth is now the one we just talked about, the sort of older woman, but expert on aging well and a writer, a full-time writer. So that gives you the pathway. I think one of the things that's really interesting that you said, and I think we're only starting to hear it more often, but you've lumped motherhood as a career. And I think so often for the longest time, nobody counted that as it was just something that like women were supposed to do as opposed to... Really, like you said, it was a hard one. You had four children and staying home was maybe difficult for you. So I think it's really interesting that you've said that as a career stage, because I think that's really important. No, I think it was for me. And I had been brought up in the 50s by my parents. My mother hadn't worked. That would be my career. And then what I realized was I had way too much energy to, and staying home was hard. I was in a lot of conflict. I mean, I'm glad now in retrospect that I was around for those nine years and I poured a lot of stuff into the kids, but those weren't easy years. And I think people need help with getting a balance. And at that point, they, it was hard to do. I never occurred to me to get a job. I just thought, oh, this is it. And I did feel a little bit that, that I wasn't, it wasn't fully satisfying to me. I was felt a little sacrificial. I was serving other people. So it was a big 
and really good move when I went back to social work school. And suddenly I found my direction, my purpose, and, and it all worked. As far as going back to school, you said you loved school, which I completely get because I love studying. But I feel in a way that you're almost maybe 30 years, 25 years ahead of the curve because there's all these women now that are saying they're getting this new life at 50 or 50 is the new 30 or what have you. But if I'm not mistaken, what, when you went for, was it your PhD that you went at 50? I did go at 50. And I had, uh, yes. And I, at that point, I was in a different stage because my kids were out of the house by then. Maybe one was still, but he was like a senior in high school. So I had a freedom and it was a time I thought, this is my time and I can do this. But the crazy thing I did, and this, I wouldn't advise it for other people. I was working full time and I went into a full-time PhD program. It was like crazy, but it was a program for people that worked. And so it was like tailored. I went to Boston University, got in social psychology, and then we had a cohort of 24 people. So we were a group and helped ourselves through, and we went to school at night. And so it, it all worked, but it was a little crazy, I have to admit. And did you say that your kids were grown by then? They were out of the house, so that at least you didn't have that? Yeah, they were in college, you know, so they're coming and going, but not at full time. And, and my husband was, I think, if I th- think about how I could do the things I did, it certainly made it a lot easier to have a supportive husband. And so that he was willing to put up with the fact that I was doing homework. And he was very supportive all the way through. And that at that time, that was unusual. But he made it possible for me. Of course, I had helped him for the 10 years I was at home. He was head of a school and I did 90% of the work. So we had a joke <laughs> that I, get, I supported him for 10 years. And then he supported me for 10 years. But then at the end of the 10 years, he was still supporting me. He said, hey, my 10 years is up. <laughs> but he kept being very supportive. I like that story because like you said, I don't think that's always the case even now. But again, especially at the time, to have the support, I think, is hugely important. And then the sad thing is that so many people don't get that support even today. I just, my most recent blog is just about, I interviewed older men and how they changed. And they've changed a lot, I think. In, but there's still, for women, and there's a lot of women that don't have supportive men or the housework is not 50-50 for most couples. And it's still... A lot of the old ways cling. I was even reading statistics about motherhood that if you really calculate hours that women are spending doing what motherhood requires and solely the woman doing this part or the one half of the relationship, it it calculates to something like a time and a half what a full-time job would be. And that's one of the reasons I was saying about you mentioning it as a career, because it is you sometimes supporting your spouse from home and on top of it, the full-time career plus of raising children. I think women still don't get the credit or the acknowledgement of what a a contribution it is. And I do think it's good for kids. But I think it's especially as as my kids got older, they were often very grateful that I worked. And they always were telling me, I'm glad you're not an intrusive mother. I think that gave them a more freedom to become self-reliant, actually, in a good way, and a little more independent. And today, mothering has changed so much that people, and I think it's it can be a full-time job easily. So how did you end up deciding on psychology? I, obviously, it was a good move because it ended up being 30, what, 37 years of your life. But yep. how did you decide on that? When I graduated from college, I, and then I was having, was at home with the children. 
I was thinking, now, what is it that I want to do? And I made a couple, I tried out a couple of things. I mean, I took a course here and there. I took a course in religion and, and I decided, no, that's not quite right. Then I took a course in archaeology. I'd always thought archaeology was interesting. And nah, that's not, it was cultural and I, it was very fascinating, but it wasn't quite right. And then I took something in psychology and it was really, it, I just found I loved it. And so that kind of woke me up. And then I had a friend who went to social work school and which of course the courses are mostly psychology there. So that got me going to that. The social work is part that I loved was the psychology in it. Mm -hmm. And I was less interested in casework or administration or things like that. And uh, so then it was just deepening my understanding. If you, with social work is two years. And after working 10 years in the field, I realized there was still so much I wanted to know. So then I moved, but I moved not in clinical psychology. My PhD is in social psychology, which is really, by then I was interested in organizations and change and systems. I mean, as a psychotherapist, you focus on people one one at a time, and it's very gratifying because people do change, despite all the bad press therapists sometimes get. But you do change, but then you see that it's too slow. You one by one, you see how the systems are what hold people back, and so that's why I chose social psychology, and it was a great choice for me. So I then had expertise in psycho. I went back later in my being at. Actually, I've let this out of my six careers till I did go back in the after I left my organizational work. I went, I'd had my own company, Ibis, after I got my PhD. But then I went back when I left that, finally, I went back again to psychotherapy. And so I loved psychotherapy. Think about, I think maybe mine is different. I know there's so many terrible stories of people in workplaces that are hard and bosses that are not good. But I, I liked the other various stages I went through. And when I got to psychology, I knew it was right. And there were any number of ways I could fit in. You mentioned that you are now an aging expert. You talk about positive aging and there's a book involved, 80-somethings, A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging and Finding Unexpected Happiness. But it seems like maybe there was a moment that kind of something clicked that made you go, wait a minute, all of a sudden I feel like I'm 80. And basically what happened, I guess, that kind of made you go, 80's different? Yeah, I had a, a moment. I did. I had an aha moment. Uh, but it started out with, uh, as I had my 80th birthday, I kind of went into a, a funk, of a kind of minor depression. And I was thinking, I've had a great ride so far, but it's all going to be downhill now. And I was feeling pretty bad in this funk. And then my aha moment came when I was at my summer place and we went, a bunch of my uh, grandkids and several of my sons, and we went for a hike that, uh, on this little mountain that, you know, it takes about a, just an hour and a half to get up the top of it. It's not, it's a westerner, we'd call it a hill, but it is steep at the end. And I, that day it had rained, I fell, which it was like, it was a blow to my pride. And I scraped my knee and it bled. And then I fell again, which I'd never done. And so when I got to the bottom of this steep place where the last pinch going up the mountain, it is a mountain, I just realized I couldn't do it. And that day, I think I, I just couldn't. And I was just so shocked. And like, I had always seen myself as I can work my through, way through anything. I'll just power through. And it, that didn't work. 
And mm. so I sat down on a stump with, and one of my st- sons stayed with me while all the others went up the mountain and had lunch up there. And, and I was just realizing I couldn't just power through. I was going to have to make adjustments. I wasn't going to be a super mom, super grand, a grandma. I was going to be a normal human being and age like everybody else. And uh, so we sat there and my son, we just talked. And by the time they came down about an hour later, I had put myself back together enough to just not fall apart. And actually it was a change. I, from that point on, realized I was old. And then what happened was I said, somebody must know how to do this right. And so I thought, well, I don't, I sure don't know how to do it right yet. And so that's when I thought, I'm going to start interviewing people and maybe I'll write something. I had written books before, so I thought this is something I'm going to find out from. And so I decided to interview a lot of people in their 80s, because that's where I was, and not do people that were younger and not do people that were older. And I was amazed because these people were, turned out to be doing interesting things, much more adventuresome than I was, actually. I thought I was very adventuresome. So I, as I started, then I got going on this book and it was clear to me that I had something. And you read that long title, but the kind of the juicy bit in that title is finding unexpected happiness because what was the huge surprise was I interviewed 128 people in their 80s, and they were all over the country, and they were rich and poor, educated, not so educated, men, women, blacks, whites. It wasn't a scientific sample, but it was a big enough sample that I got a lot of variety. And the trend clearly was that people were finding themselves as they were in their 80s. First of all, they would say, I never thought I was going to get here. Never. Mm. I mean, my father died when he was 42 or something. And, and so most people in the 80s, in my generation, are just flabbergasted that they actually made it that far. And then they're flabbergasted that despite whatever they have, like a, using a cane or needing a walker and have, being, having hearing impairment or whatever, they're having a very good time and that they are enjoying their life and they didn't think that would ever happen. And so that was my a surprise learning myself. And I think part of it is, of course, the huge giant steps that modern medicine has given us. That, And so most people live pain-free in their 80s. They're able to be happy and that doesn't last forever and it's not all people, but vast majority with Modern medicine and the changes in heart and cancer, it's a different world. And so that was, I was felt I was exploring a new world. You mentioned climbing a mountain <laughs> and then going, oh, I can't do it today. That was a milestone. Like I realized I was getting older, etc. But so much of what I'm seeing today, again, you're 30 years ahead in a way, because I'm seeing so many things, you know, for the longest time, it was 50s over the hill. And now everybody talks about, oh, I'm growing younger or I refuse to age. And I think it's really interesting because there's something to be said about acceptance. Eventually things will change. And I like that you got to 80 (laughs) and then it was like, wait a second. Okay, my things have changed a little bit. And then exploring that journey. I'm not sure if I'm saying this very well. No, I think you've got it exactly right. Because I think I'm on this mission now. You know, when I realized I was old, but I now am on a mission to have people see that's normal and that we don't want to be saying fighting to be younger. We want to be saying this is 80. You you remember that Gloria Steinem story when she was 40? People said, Gloria, some younger people don't know who Gloria Steinem is, but 
very famous feminist. And she said, people said to her, you look so great for 40. And she said, this is 40. And I think what we are beginning to say, well, this is 80, and that we should realize that there's pleasures in every age. I think people are so dreading aging and that there's so much that people need to learn about how aging is different from what they imagine it to be. And people are still so terrified of when they get a wrinkle or their hair turns gray or people can remember that their first gray hair. 25. I was 25 when I had, I saw my first white hair. So if that made me old, (laughs) wow, I hate to think how old I am now. (laughs) No, but I think people do have that as a terrible moment. I think I was 28. My, My mother had gotten gray hair. She was one of those people that started getting gray hair at 19. Mm-hmm. And my hair, hers was black and it went, mine came a lot slower because I had dirty brown hair. So I think that, that we all need to reimagine, re-understand what it means to age and to the, your word accept. I think it's just right, Kristen, that we it's a whole education to think about aging. One of the things I like to tell is, because I think we we are so afraid of it and people, th- our women are, afraid to lose their looks and there's some reality in it because I've interviewed some older women in their 50s and well they were calling themselves older women and it was very upsetting because they were having some trouble finding jobs and they felt that just when they were no longer the beautiful smart people and they got these fabulous jobs that now when they were trying to get a second chapter it wasn't as easy so I don't want to minimize that they're real issues but I think our attitude is part of it that if people need to understand what they can bring to an organization and and we need to not be apologizing, but sort of learning to reevaluate aging completely. So I think that that's a whole education of America that is... Trust me, in the UK, <laughs> I can say it's an education of the world, I think, or at least the worlds that I'm familiar with. I think the other thing is seeing more of... I want to say, because I don't think there's anything wrong with the people that choose to. I mean, I color my hair because I got that first white hair at 25. I do things. I use nighttime moisturizer, whatever. That's about as far as I tend to go. I don't want to judge someone because everyone should be able to do what they feel makes them or what makes them feel good. But I also think we need to see more natural aging on television, in film, in ads, Because we're seeing people that this is 50 or what have you, but a lot of times it's so augmented that we don't really see sometimes what this is 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or, you know, whatever is. And again, I think so much of it's about attitude so that we could see, oh, you could look like this, i.e. naturally older, but still be this vibrant or still climb this mountain or still be intelligent and worth hiring for a job, for example. And still capable of being powerful and playing a role in the, an important role. No, I often tell the story of kintsuki, and you may know about, this is the Japanese art of taking shards of broken pottery and putting them back together again with kind of a golden filler there. Mm-hmm. And they think that that pottery that has all these golden lines running through it is more beautiful than the original untarnished and unbroken pieces. And it speaks to me. It's a lovely metaphor for what I think is the attitude we should be moving towards in that there is a kind of beauty when you see old people naturally aging. And it's a stunning kind of beauty and in some ways more beautiful than uh, kind of the, the beauty of youth. I know it was interesting when 
I and I got my husband saw this when we were very young. I went when I graduated. They also had the fifty year class of marching in a parade at my college. So these older women, they were they were like seventy when they're six. They weren't that old, but they he thought they were much more beautiful than the graduated class because they they marched with a little pizzazz and kind of a they had it. You felt the bounce and sense of I'm alive and I'm enjoying every minute of it. So I think that's something that we have to train our eyes, I think, to see the beauty of old age. Modern television and movies and everything don't help us particularly, but there are examples. And I think people did fall in love with Ginsburg, RBG, and different other older women that we're beginning to see that the beauty and the possibilities. Yeah, I know that the one of the most beautiful things or one of the most beautiful things I can think of and womanly and my grandmother's skin. She's no longer with us, but she lived to be 96, 97. My, if my mom listens to this, she's going to be mad that I'm saying the wrong age. But she just had this, I can't describe it other than crinkly. It just all like her entire surface of her skin was just this beautiful texture. And I just, to me, that is one of the most... I. Of course, being self-judgmental, I'm like, oh, I don't think my wrinkles are the same as my grandmother's wrinkles and hers were so pretty, but she just had the most beautiful skin. So I do think when you associate it with a person, especially, and the beauty that was her and then wrinkles, that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So you've had, your grandmother's going to make you already see things differently for yourself. That's great. And I uh, know I think people, they'll, this will be happen more often as people have grandmothers that live to their 90s. I live in a retirement community and there's just many people in their 90s. I can remember that the first time I met somebody in their hundreds, I had, was just, again, so surprised. This person was walking around coming out of a church service and this older woman was leading even older woman and walking down there, but she was walking jauntily and she said to me, I'd like you to be my mother. And then she said, well, we just are celebrating our 101st birthday, and I was stunned. So I think we're all going to be having those jolts of, of, of the new world and the new frontiers. And uh, I think it will all have to do more life planning, and hopefully people will start earlier in thinking about it, because I think as it is now, people suddenly are 65, they're not in the workplace, and then they say, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with these 40 or these years ahead? I'm not clear. Yeah. Just what am I in a health position that I can be climbing mountains or doing walks or doing? I know you have a checklist of great things you can be doing in your 80s, which I sent along to my mother who's in her 70s. But I was like, you're not doing some of these things already. And I think you could add this injection of adventure. Time, what health position, also financial positions. Because again, as I've been studying about this living to 100 kind of thing, we don't expect necessarily to live 30 or 40 years after retirement. And a lot of times people aren't in a financial position to really live out their years because they weren't planning for this kind of longevity. I think it's one of the things, again, where we have to do a lot of education because I think that's absolutely right. And people in America, anyway, don't have wills and don't have, now there's not good pension plans from organizations. So it's very much more difficult. And people, the things they worry about, I'd interviewed people about what do you worry about is in your 80s? And they worry about their finances running out. And that's a scary. 
and they worry about having to be a burden on their kids. And, and I think that uh, it's not pleasant to be old and to have financial difficulties. It uh, really isn't. And the statistics about life expectancy, they go down when you get to people that are having, fin- you know, in the lower economic ranks, they mm-hmm. don't live so long. But for those in the middle class, and especially women, they, if they're realistic, I found when I interview people, when they're 80, nobody counts on more than 18 months. So that if they have a, like, people plan their wedding so far in advance, somebody will say, I'm having my wedding in 2025. The 80-year-olds say, maybe I'll go, but they don't plan on it because they, they're always surprised when I say 80. Even at 87, I have a five-year life expectancy, and people think I've got a 10-minute life expectancy. I could go any minute, which is true, but you know, the actual statistics say something much different. So you mentioned potentially being a burden on your kids, but I think one of the things that's really interesting in the book as well is that you have a lot about four, four children and grandchildren of 80-somethings plus, how to talk to each other, how to bring up difficult conversations. Because I think one of the frustrations, my dad died two years ago, and one of our frustrations was he didn't have a will. And as far as some of his wishes, like as he didn't want to be buried, we, he wanted to be cremated, which we only happened to know because of a conversation that he had with my sister, one of six of us. But I think it's really interesting as a resource for any age, really. I think people need a little help in having those difficult conversations. You know, I did find that people, what they like in that book is that there are conversation starters. And I think people worry about the young people, the 50s, worry about their 80s. You know, they see their people come, come, see their mother's car all banged up and realize that she's had 10 accidents, you know, and hasn't told anybody. Yeah. So you need to confront things. And yet it's hard. We're not trained. And I think it's a shame your dad died without a will because it makes it so much harder for everybody. And yet that's very common. Most people, it, yeah, I think we, we can do a lot better. And I think part of what was in my mind as I got into this whole subject of aging was that the 50s people, the children, adult children of people that are in their 80s and 90s actually can get very bossy. They're trying to do well with them. But during the uh, pandemic, there was a generational conflict because the 80s were more, in some cases, more relaxed about it. And then the kids that were saying, giving, I had lots of people that I, clients and friends and people that their kids would say, you cannot go out, you cannot go to restaurants, being very, not negotiating with them. So it, it, there is work on both sides. And I think that the children of these 80-year-olds need to realize that the parents have the right to some autonomy in making stupid choices, like your father made what we would call an unwise choice not to have a... <laughs> but that people do have the right to be unwise. And, but you can also bring up such subjects in a way that it might work better. If you listen to people who've been successful in tackling it, there are some ways that work. So there's a lot to learn for all of us in, um, in intergenerational conversations. And, and people are often surprised when they learn more about how happy people in their 80s actually are because people in their 50s are saying, if I had to be like Uncle Joe and be in that wheelchair, I'd shoot myself. And of course, when they get there, they never would shoot themselves because they're having a good time, many of them. Yeah. One of the things my dad always said was he might have a, a niggle, an ache, a pain of something or whatever. And he'd always say, beats the alternative. There is a lot to say about 
somebody has spent so many years accumulating all of this knowledge and all of this life wisdom and then to talk down to them and act. I mean, we boss my mom around all the time. Poor thing. You should be doing this, mom. You should be doing this. And some of it she should be doing. It's mostly about health or diet or exercise or taking care of herself. But at the end of the day, she's still older than us. She's still accumulated a lifetime of wisdom and we shouldn't be talking to her like she's a child. I call it upside down parenting in the book because the children, in many ways, they gradually do take authority. So at the very last stages of life, usually it's the children that make decisions and play a key role. But before the last stages, they can get, as you say, very bossy and not everybody agrees. And so it can be very fraught and uh, with conflict. You mentioned the pandemic and one of the articles that you've written talked about being forced to cohabitate during the pandemic. <laughs> I wasn't sure about your relationship status now. I didn't want to get too intrusive, but... Um... No, that's fine. I have a partner, Peter, and we did... This is a, a sort of a funny article I wrote for... It appeared in another magazine and about being mm. put into forced cohabitation. It was true. Our retirement community, let's last in the March, like March 12th, or maybe it was a little a few days later, it suddenly decided to lock down and we have 200 people here. And I was in a relationship with Peter, but we have apartments. I'm 205, he's 605. We were going up and down at the elevator back and forth, but we had dinner together and we were in, in, in each other's apartments a lot. But then they came to us and said, you have one hour to decide. We're not going to let you go back and forth. So you either have to move into one of those apartments or you will be separate in your own apartments. And so that was like a hard moment, to, but not a hard decision at all. We've said, no, we'll be together. We figured that out. By then, we'd been together for about two years. So we decided to live together, which we hadn't. We were going back and forth. But then we, the real conflict was... Who's a, which apartment would we live in? <laughs> he wanted us, Peter wanted us to be in his. It had a better view. He's 605. He's got a beautiful view of the river. And he likes all his stuff. He wanted to be with his stuff. And I, my apartment, I like my own stuff too. But then I finally won out because I was working on the book. And mm. I have a big old-fashioned desktop. And uh, so I, that wasn't going to be transferable. I, care, I couldn't carry it up to his and he can work on his phone mostly. So he graciously conceded, and we've been living together 205 ever since. And we're still a, a couple, and that was March of 20 or 19. I think it was March of 19. And we survived the pandemic very well, and I really felt so lucky to have a partner because it was very pleasant. They used to bring the meals up and hang our dinner in a paper bag outside the door. We didn't see anybody else for 12 weeks. We had a severe lockdown for 12 weeks. But I think I would have gone crazy if alone. And it was just such a good decision. So it also made a funny article. I do think it's difficult sometimes, just any later stage relationship, not when you're in your sort of still maybe more pliable, I should say, 20s or teens, 20s. I feel like sometimes the the relationship kind of grows together. And obviously you have to make compromises no matter what. But as someone who's divorced and now has a different partner, there are things sometimes I feel like that you're more set in your ways. Let's put it that way. So I do find a relationship maybe a little bit later in life has different kind of compromises. You grow together a little bit differently. Any tips on being in a confined space? <laughs> Well, it worked out well for us. We have actually, it was amazingly easy. I think we were just, we're 
in that thing of being just glad to be alive. Two, so glad to have company. Three, being having lots of things to talk about. He had, uh, oddly enough, as the ex- almost identical same career path as my husband, which was in education and working at colleges and uh, being head of a school, a secondary school. We had lots of, th- it was for me, lots of the same old conversations. It was just like home. And he was felt like home too, and so it was easy. But of course, aging puts is not so easy, and th- so that puts stresses and strains. I'd say that's where we've both we've had COVID. We, he got COVID twice, and he's on a walker, so it's not all easy. It isn't, but the rigidity somehow, I guess maybe too, because we're in a retirement community that we get taken care of here. We don't have to cook. We have dinners downstairs. It's a very easy and pleasant life. And then, um, now he has his own office. He could go and so he'll leave and go upstairs. So we're not even in our, each other's hair. We have two apartments. So that's probably the secret. <laughs> it's <laughs> not practical, but he can go up there anytime he wants. And he works up there and goes up every morning, but he sometimes goes up in the afternoon too. And so we're not together all, all day. But I do think it takes learning how to talk together. And that's, that is different in, a, in the real challenges. Are you going to be upfront with what's going on? And can the relationship hold it? And how honest are you going to be with each other? And there's a lot to think about. Yeah. And I guess that's the case no matter what your age is. Yeah. Being able to talk and being able to be honest with each other is probably the key to a really good relationship regardless. I think so. I do think so. And it's such a relief when you can you can say things and and it's not easy at any age. No, I think it's still at eighty eight. He's a younger man though. He's eighty seven. I like to hear that. <laughs> Did you say? I think I read somewhere that people sometimes call him your boy toy. Yeah, exactly. So that's nice. And I, one of the things I really hope in my writing to open the possibilities for people as they age that there can be love at every age and that it is all possible. We have a lot of people in this retirement community couple come and go and we see them, but they, people, I know for us, for instance, we had dinner, but often with other people. But then one night there was a February of that first pandemic year, there was a, a dance and he can't walk, he can't really dance. But we went to this thing and we sat there together and we stood up and kind of swayed a little bit. And the whole community has their eyes on who, where are the couples for me? <laughs> so the next day, two people called up and nobody had ever invited us to dinner together. They'd invite me and then people invite him. But the next day, two people called and said, could you and Peter come to dinner sometime? So they had decided from that little bit of evidence, we <laughs> were a couple. And of course it was right. But Gossip doesn't change no matter where or how old or... <laughs> oh, people so yes, they're spotting when it happens. I love it. I think the only other question I have for you is, did you bring a quote for me today? I did bring, I brought two quotes. People could say, I have been lucky, but I don't think it's just luck. I think what helped me is that I do have an adventuresome side to myself. So I would love to tell people that are, that are really um, thinking about what they can do. And this is a quote from Goethe, but whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And I do think so if people have a, a kind of inkling that they want to be more or do something different, I want to feel that they should try it out. I had a, had a client that wanted to travel around the world in a car. And so I said, let's just start by maybe going for the weekend and let's see how it goes you, to begin things. And don't think you don't start a PhD program. You start one course and see how it goes. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think that helped me, if you said, Catherine, what do you really think Allah has allowed you to do so many things and make so many changes? Because I know some people are don't have the courage or whatever to leave. I know somebody was into publishing and they really wanted to teach, but they just couldn't do it. I like this other quote by Carl Jung. It says, I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. And I think to really realize that we have so many choices. And I've got one more I like. It's worked in my writing group. I'm in a writing group that meets every week. And I think the advice I got in graduate school that I really have taken to heart is it's organize, don't agonize, which sounds simple, but people get so anxious and having panic attacks and when they make these things. And it really, I think, the key to making a change in midlife is to see that it's really a question of perseverance and discipline. And you don't have to be the most brilliant person in the world or the most talented or the most creative, but the people that actually make a success of a second chapter of their own choice, I think it is by organizing and realizing they can put it on on their calendars when they'll do this and when they'll do that and just keeping a level head. But I do believe in perseverance and uh, discipline. But I think, and I think more things now, you know, I think people need mentors. And it seems like your program is mentoring people to broaden their possibilities, which is, I think, just what we need to do and encourage women that they can do it and that it is possible and that you can make radical changes. And when I went to graduate school, I had to give up my job and I gave up my, my resume, so to speak, because I had been in community mental health and I suddenly was changing and so at 50, when I went out to get a job, I was like the junior person. And here I was quite mature, but I was like a beginner in that new field of takes I'm doing. Yeah, well, I do hope that the people listening that maybe do feel a bit fearful or I always say that I think my guests are so inspiring and they inspire me. I do hope that some of the tips that people like you have brought to the show and some of the conversations that I've had with women doing amazing things at all ages are inspiring. And I know that you've certainly been very inspiring for me today. So I have to say thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I love being here. And this has been an interesting way we took it with the chapters. And it's always, I like, but I very much like be here and thank you for having me. I hope that the longevity continues, the adventure continues, and I look forward to talking to you on your 100th birthday, maybe. Maybe so. That's a deal. All right. Sounds good. Take care. You too. And thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.